I've described this as my retirement project because I know that having a cliff edge of nothing to do in an empty diary frankly terrifies me. This is Claire Fisher. That the only thing in my diary is my chemo appointments is not good for me. She lives near London with her husband and three children, and she has stage four bowel cancer. The only thing I have to get up for is to go to chemo. That's really rubbish. She's currently receiving hospice care, and she's decided to make dying well her retirement project. When Claire was 39 years old, she was on a work trip to the Cayman Islands. Now, it's important to understand that Claire is a public policy expert. She figures out how to make big government policy actually work well in the real world. So she's practical. And this matters because you will hear how it impacts how she approaches her terminal illness. Claire also knows a lot about well-being. She is an associate for the UK's What Work Center for Well-Being, which looks at well-being evidence to improve both decision-making and policy. What we're beginning to understand in the UK is that people's well-being, how well they are, how they feel about their own sense of well-being is really, really important for all sorts of things, for you know how well they parent their children, how um, their health might be affected, how well they are likely to do at work, or you know how they manage going to manage unemployment, that kind of thing. So we are really interested in how we measure what works in terms of well-being, what kind of interventions we can make in policy terms um, for well-being. Um, and basically at the bottom bottom line is how do we make sure that when we invest public money into things like education or health programs that we're investing money that's actually going to do something useful and meaningful. And Claire is now benefiting from one of the programs that the What Works Centre helped create. I'm actually now um, part of an exercise program that's being delivered by our health service because we've got a really strong evidence base of the value for exercise of people with advanced cancer for their well-being Uh, and we can see that that's hugely beneficial not just for the individual but frankly it makes them much better able to engage with their own care and better able to respond to treatment and all sorts of things. So our health system is funding this exercise program in the same way that it might fund medicine or other treatment because we're able to measure them on a, on a par. Prior to her advanced cancer diagnosis, Claire was traveling the world as part of her policy work. She was literally helping other countries figure out how to be happier. So, um, so I we traveled to Dubai um, with the What Works team to help the government there who are determined to be the happiest country in the world. Uh, There's a world happiness index. So we were helping uh, the government in in Dubai look at at how to incorporate these wellbeing measures into their policy making. And then most recently in 2018, she went to the Caribbean for a development project. It was in the Cayman Islands where Claire would get very sick. I think the first thing to say, I I was as far as I knew, completely well. Um, 
at the point of diagnosis. <laughs> you know, at first, she thought she just had a tummy bug. But then she started to feel a lot worse. But by Wednesday evening, I was just in so much pain. Um, and the lady that I was teaching with looked at me in the evening and called me an ambulance. So I went uh, to hospital in an ambulance, went to Cayman Islands. They put me in a scanner. Um, and they said that I had a bowel obstruction. Mm. Um, that was really tricky because the uh, hospital in the Cayman Islands said that they couldn't do the surgery there that I needed. They said I needed surgery to remove this bowel obstruction. Um, but they couldn't I put me in a plane because I would have to fly to, to America to have the surgery. But they said I, I wasn't fit to fly. And so there was a sort of 48 hours, 24, 48 hours, maybe I was on a lot of painkillers. I don't really remember when they tried to work out whether they could transfer me, whether my insurance would cover it, all these kind of things. I don't really remember that period. But anyway, mm. I ended up getting transferred. I, I ended up being flown to Miami. And when I got to Miami, I had the surgery to remove this bowel obstruction. And it was really only when I kind of came around from that surgery did I understand that the bowel obstruction was cancer, um, that obviously it was a tumour that was big enough to give me a complete bowel obstruction, that it was that it was cancer. Um, then managed to kind of recover from that surgery and get get home. And then another series of scans. And that was really when I kind of engaged properly, I suppose, with the healthcare system in, in England and really understood that, yes, it was cancer, it was a tumour. Um, and that was when I first was given the label that it was actually stage four cancer um, and that there was evidence that had spread to um, to my liver and to my ovaries as well. So that was that was the beginning of my diagnosis. Oh, my gosh. So, so kind of Christmas 2018 was probably sort of my absolute low point was the surgery kind of aftershock, I suppose. Um, and then probably January 2019 was when I really engaged with what had happened and what that meant and the fact that this was not going to be a thing that was just a quick surgery that I had to recover from but this was cancer that I would be living with pretty much forever. When she was given the diagnosis of stage four cancer her healthcare team didn't really talk about how much time they thought she had left. So Claire did what a lot of us would do. She got on the internet. So the statistics in the UK for stage four bowel cancer is less than a 50% chance of surviving the first year. Mm. So, um, yeah, I figure once I made the first year, I was kind of in bonus time, I suppose. Mm. Um, and then the further out you look from that, you know, two years is quite unlikely and five years is pretty unheard of. Mm -hmm. So I'm now uh, two and a half years almost. Mm -hmm. since my diagnosis so I'm definitely beating the statistics but I still you know I've had the cancer recur in other places um nobody specifically really talks to you about life expectancy or you know sits you down and says this is how long you've got left mm -hmm. um but certainly I would say you know I regularly get told that they're impressed with how I'm still here which I think is kind of a good thing but also a little bit <laughs> A little bit ominous, isn't it, when you hear that from a medical professional? Um, um, yeah, so it's a it's a really interesting one, actually. And you know, I've kind of been thinking about 
I, I would say this this last few months, so two years six since my diagnosis, I've retired. I've decided that I'm not going to kind of keep working anymore. So I've been working for the last two years. Um, and that's probably the first time I've started saying publicly to people that my cancer diagnosis is a terminal diagnosis. I think up until this point, probably people that I work with assume that I would be getting better, that, you know, I'd have some chemo and I'd be better after it, or I'd have a surgery and I'd be better after it. Um, my my family and my friends know, obviously, that's quite serious and that it probably will kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my very close family, I think, you know, have known that that you know we were glad that I got home alive up from America. <laughs> we were very very pleased that I made it not just home for that first Christmas, but a second Christmas. Mm-hmm. And now I've had a third Christmas, and we kind of just feel grateful for every extra thing we have at the moment. I think rather than looking too far ahead to how many more might be coming. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell me about your thinking of just? sort of waiting to share with people that your cancer is a terminal diagnosis? I think on the one hand, I've been very, very honest with the people very close to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the word terminal is quite a hard one to use. I've become quite interested in the language that people use. So I've only recently started talking about having a terminal diagnosis. It's not something that anybody's ever said to me, actually. Um, but I think we I've been quite honest with with my friends and my family that this is the cancer this cancer is going to be what's going to kill me and it's going to do it sooner rather than later and talked in terms of most people who have the same cancer as me would probably be dead already so you know we're very grateful that I'm still here that's the kind of way that we think about it and the way that we talk about it Mm-hmm. professionally I found it very helpful actually and very liberating to kind of have a space in my life where people don't know I'm sick mm. because I think it's very easy for your cancer to become your identity and I have felt quite strongly that actually the cancer is one of the least interesting things about me <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I found it very helpful to have other work to do and I wanted to add value and I wanted to have a reason to get up every day and do normal things like normal people. Um, So that has really mattered to have that professional identity and to kind of hold on to that as long as possible. So I wouldn't say it was that I was holding back from telling people. Um, I just think I kind of, you know, people at work knew that, yes, I Maybe they knew I had cancers, most of them. They knew I was having operations. They knew I was having chemotherapy. I think they just assumed that because I was young and looked well, that it was a thing I would be getting better from. And I probably didn't really ever spell it out for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm fascinated by you thinking a lot about the word terminal and the use of it. And is there a word that you would prefer to use? Or is there something something else that resonates more with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been really taken with, um, there's a, a brilliant uh, lady called Dr. Catherine Mannix. I'm sure you've read her if you're interested in this. And um, and she talks about sick enough to die. And I think I think that's quite an interesting way of thinking about it. You know, you know I'm, I'm sick enough to die or most people with this cancer would probably die. I think 
the problematic thing I think is when you say I have got x amount of months to live or if a doctor looks you in the eye and says you have got so many months to live and I I think what I'm finding is actually in the real world people don't talk like that it seems to be a thing that happens in films you know the very dramatic moment where they look at you and tell you how long you've got left (laughs) um I I haven't really found medics that seem to speak like that and it's not something that people seem to talk about apart from the the people that are living beyond the expectation you know they said I would had less than 12 months and here I am three years later Mm -hmm. um and because of my research background you know this is I've been digging into this a little bit and I I found actually medics tend to be very optimistic so when they are asked to pin it down they tend to be quite generous about how long they expect (laughs) to live and patients seem to um almost underestimate they seem to feel quite negative quite often about their their prognosis but actually saying exactly how long somebody's got to live is a really really tricky thing to do it's a really hard thing to pin down um and one of the things i'm interested in is this this use of language and how we label people and how they people feel almost condemned by a label you know just because somebody said you've got a certain amount of time it's only a statistic it's not kind of you're not personally condemned by it Mm -hmm. but yet so much seems to hang on those numbers so again you know I'm in the UK you know my I have life insurance so I have I'd have to prove that I've got less than 12 months to live in order to claim my life insurance Mm. in order to retire and in order to be able to kind of claim a, a benefit for people that are terminally ill I've had to ask my doctor to issue what's in this country is called a DS1500 which is a form that says you've got less than six months to live Mm. so I suppose I definitely qualify for your podcast because I have had a GP issue that form Mm. but no medic has ever said that to me I've had to request that form because I wanted to retire and I needed to apply for the benefit and when I asked for it they issued it and I think the fact that you have to ask for it in the UK is a really interesting problem actually and a lot of people die before they apply for the benefit because the medics don't want to have the conversation and they don't want to ask for the form. And that just seems really tragic to me. You know, the the label, the terminal illness, you know, has such a weight that people don't even want to speak about it, even when they're in that patient-doctor relationship, which I find really strange. So one of my big things is just I realised that people don't seem to talk about death and dying. Um, and a lot of people are dying without the benefits that they're entitled to it's essentially because nobody's had a conversation and that just seems so sad and so tragic and so unnecessary to me Mm -hmm. yeah and I know you had mentioned that you think more and talk more about death and dying because of some of the background that you have and can you talk about that again with the farming and yeah yeah for sure so I suppose you know we I think I have quite a practical approach to life um, and I suppose it's not surprising that therefore we have quite a practical approach to death you know so my background I said is you know very evidence-based very policy-based um, I see you know try and examine a problem and work out how to solve it <laughs> um, <laughs> so for me it was very natural to look at what does the evidence say you know how do you die well what does the evidence say about not just how long I've got to live, but how do you 
live that life well and what's the best form of treatment and is palliative care better than aggressive treatment and all those kind of things so I've been looking into that and and from a family point of view yes my my father was in the police force I'm married to somebody that was in the fire service we've got lots of nurses in our family um and farmers so very practical family very you know, my, my husband will talk about the privilege of seeing people die, you know, and I don't think many people have death as part of their normal life. But I think in a way, the fact that so many people in my family do have that sort of cycle of life and death and, and have actually seen people die, it means it's a, a reality that we can talk about with a kind of sense of practicality rather than the sort of emotional dread maybe that could be the case if it's just an idea rather than a reality that you've experienced firsthand. I think also faith is a really important part of our family. We're a Christian family. Mm -hmm. So the actual idea of death, I think, again, without having kind of to discuss it specifically in relation to me, but just as part of our alive as a family and how we've talked about any of the people that we've known that have died you know we have an idea that you know there is a heaven and that's where you go when you die and the people that we know that we love who have died are in heaven and we'll get to see them again when we're together there so the actual the death bit has never frightened me Mm. I think we understand that the process of dying might be painful (laughs) (laughs) and that might be unpleasant and difficult and that the reality of living without the person that you love is very sad for the people that are left behind but again I think when we talk about death as a family we wouldn't say I'm never going to see you again we'll say I'll see you when you get to heaven you know and it will feel longer for the you than it does for me Mm. but we'll see each other again when we're in heaven is a a conversation that we've had Mm -hmm. well that must feel very comforting to be able to share that with your family yeah, um, I wouldn't even describe it as comforting. It's just our version of normal. It's not a thing that's new since my diagnosis. It's just kind of part of who we are as a family. And that hasn't really changed, I would say, through my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious how you did talk with your family about um, when you uh, got the hospice recommendation I want to jump in here because the eligibility for hospice in the UK is a bit different than it is here in the United States. In the UK, the availability of hospice is dependent on need rather than a prognosis. So while a lot of the people who utilize hospice care in the United Kingdom have a life-limiting disease, there isn't always a specific criteria of six months or less like there is here in the United States. Imagine that. How amazing. Um, I'm just curious what that initial conversation was like with, first with your medical team. Can you just describe what that was like hearing that recommendation? Yeah, and I think it's interesting. So again, you know, I'm really keen to kind of advocate for early intervention from palliative care and hospice care team because they are phenomenal and just brilliant. And if you talk a bit in a minute about what they've done, but I think... Because I knew that 
that my my treatment was only ever really going to be my my oncologist talks about kicking the can down the road which is a great phrase <laughs> he's never talked about he's never talked about a treatment you know that's going to cure me uh-huh. um the very first so the very first treatment i had in the uk was a chemotherapy and i remember on the form there was a whole little set of boxes you know the what kind of treatment you were going to have and the 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 med you have to sign the consent forms and they ticked palliative and then i had to sign for consent and the first time i saw that box ticked on a page which was probably four three or four weeks after i'd had the surgery that I remember that just hitting me like a brick wall. Oh my goodness, this is they they think I'm gonna die. Mm. <laughs> and but actually after that first confrontation with that word, after I'd reconciled it to myself and had it explained that palliative doesn't mean we're literally think you're about to drop die tomorrow. You know, it means we're not expecting this to cure you, but we're expecting this to extend your life and give you a good quality of life the best that we can. Okay. Once I had that first reconciliation, then I think everything else felt fairly straightforward to me. And I know that's not everybody's experience, but I'm quite pragmatic. So the reason I had a referral to the hospice team was because I was having quite a lot of pain. And my doctor, frankly, wasn't being very good at managing that pain. They just put me on codeine and there didn't seem to be any other options. And when I said, this doesn't seem to be working... They said, there's not a lot else I can do unless you want me to refer you to the pain team at the hospice. Mm. So I guess I heard there's some other people that could do a better job than this. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, let me talk to them. That would be fine. (laughs) Um, So I didn't have to go to a hospice because, you know, we're in kind of COVID lockdown um, at the moment in the UK. Um, so everything's happening over the phone or by video consultation. So I just had a, you know, I had a phone call from a nurse at a hospice team. And to be honest, maybe it would have been more impactful if I'd have had to visit the hospice in person, but it would just felt like talking to any other nurse. Mm -hmm. The difference felt like I was, they were talking to me like I was a whole person rather than a set of symptoms. So rather than saying, tell me about the pain and let me look at the scan, they said to me like well tell us what you want to do what's the pain stopping you doing and I was able I said well you know I did couch to 5k on a treadmill but actually the pain's too much now I I feel I can't quite run as much as I want to and they said great well well if we give you this kind of pain meds you should be able to run again and I thought wow you know this isn't a hospice team that's waiting for me to die (laughs) They, they understand that I have a life to live and things I want to do and Something that was really important to me as well, I, I, I'd become aware that the pain had got to the point that I was kind of grimacing involuntarily. And my family were noticing, you know, my kids were going, are you all right, mummy? And I'd be like, yes, fine. And you're like, you're not, you're really not. And, and actually it matters to me that they don't, I mean, I think as a mother, you can kind of manage your own pain. It doesn't feel like a big deal, but you kind of don't want your kids to feel that you're in pain that felt like a bigger deal than the pain itself actually Mm. so again I was able to explain that to the hospice care team and said actually one of my goals is that you know could I just be in enough you know could there be enough lack of pain that I don't do this involuntary grimace in front of my children Uh (laughs) and cause them to worry about me 
and and they were like yeah yeah that's totally manageable and and hearing from a medical professional that it's totally reasonable to expect your pain to be managed and for them to seem to have a an array of options and yeah you know try this and then we'll call you back next week and we'll talk through how that's going and then we'll tweak it and then we'll call you back next week you know was just remarkable because as I said up to that point you know oncologists medics they're great but they want to remove or fix the cancer mm. they want you to be completely better and the point that you're not going to get completely better they sort of I think they think they failed a little bit maybe and they don't quite know what to do with you whereas the hospice team and the palliative care team are all about helping you live well for as long as they can mm-hmm. um and that's they've, they've just been brilliant. So yeah, highly, highly recommend early intervention from palliative care. And so I was under the hospice team and receiving palliative care while I was still working. Um, and again, I think that's a, a thing maybe people don't expect, mm-hmm. you know, that you're not sitting there about to keel over. You can look well on the outside, um, but need the support of the palliative care or the hospice teams to kind of just keep going, really. Wow. So now that you're in hospice care, how is your pain? Do you feel better? Yeah, completely better. I, I would say, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm still at home. I think it's important to say, you know, I'm, I'm at home. I still not actually set foot into the hospice. Again, that's a COVID thing rather than a, a kind of practical thing. So my, my care is being dealt with entirely remotely. I'm, I'm at home. I'm in less pain now than I was six months ago. Again, I think this is really interesting. So, like, people assume maybe that terminal illness is like this, I don't know, downward decline into a pit of despair or something. <laughs> My experience is it's much more of a, I've talked about a roller coaster, but I don't think it's even that. I think maybe it's like a meandering path a little bit, you know. So, the point of my diagnosis was absolute rock bottom. You know, I wouldn't have been surprised, and probably the medics wouldn't have been surprised if I'd have died that month or, you know, within two months. Mm. Then I had some chemo and I handled it really, really well. And suddenly it was possible that I was going to live another year. Then I had some surgeries that went remarkably well. I had a year off treatment. I've managed to, and so I had a year off active treatment when I've been just having my pain managed during which time I have worked full time, you know, I run 5k fairly regularly. I'm active. If you met me in the street, you wouldn't know that I was poorly. Um, and now the cancer's come back to such a degree that I'm back on palliative chemo. So yeah, as of today, I'm probably as well on a day to day practical level as I have been since before my original diagnosis. Wow. That's really amazing. Yeah. And I don't think it's unusual, though. I think I think particularly people who are maybe younger when they're diagnosed and particularly people that get good palliative care intervention early on. Um, it's perfectly possible to have a good number of quality years mm-hmm. after a diagnosis that on paper should see you dead within six months. Mm. So how did you tell your family then about entering hospice care what was that conversation like especially with your children yeah so again I don't I mean on a, on a practical level it's just another nurse that we're dealing with it's just a, anyone that's had a cancer diagnosis knows that your your list of professionals is as long as your arm fairly quickly in terms of how we're thinking about the future we've had the conversation about where I might die and what that might mean 
I'm very interested in my death being as good as it can be and as untraumatic as it possibly can be from my family. So we've had a conversation about, well, where would that be? Would it be better for everybody if I was to die at home or would it be better for everybody if I was to die in a hospice? Mm. Um, and the hospice, again, because we can't physically visit at the moment, in normal times you'd be able to visit and see it. They've produced a video, which has been really a really lovely little guided tour of the hospice facility. And so we've watched that with the family. And it, it looks sort of like in between a house and a hospital, which is just perfect. You know, it it's, looks fairly friendly. It's got a beautiful garden. It's not too far from here. Um, and so we haven't really kind of decided, but we've had that conversation that, you know, this, this is a, a nice place. This is where my nurses work. Um, it's a nice place doesn't it look lovely hasn't it got a beautiful garden that might be a nice place for me to go to die if I became really poorly um, and we couldn't manage me being at home I think we don't talk about certainties I think I'm very careful when we look to the future that it's always about what might happen or what will probably happen or you know sort of share my thinking with them a little bit um, so that they feel that they've they can kind of see how decisions might get made and they can see how they could kind of contribute to those decisions. So, you know, I'm, I've, I've told them that I'm interested to know, you know, if they think it would make them feel sad if I was at home being very poorly or if it would make them feel sad if I was far away. They they can kind of say and we can, we, that can help mm-hmm. how we decide. But we've not said definitely this is going to happen or anything like that because I think I just, I don't feel able to commit... <laughs> to how things are going to pan out um I, I, I think being vague you know but honest is probably better than trying to make some kind of false promises that you're gonna not be able to fulfill mm-hmm. and so how old are your kids uh, I have twins who are 15 and my little one who's 10 okay so it sounds like you really involve them just sort of in the decision making or just the communication about what the family wants as a whole yeah and again that's not particular to my diagnosis that's just kind of how we are as a family I think you know we, we talk about our family being a team you know so it's it's not just my diagnosis it's very much a thing that affects everybody mm-hmm. and yeah so we talk about the things that affect our family and the decisions that we make as a family and I don't know I mean we were, had a big discussion today about we're going to redecorate the kitchen next week you know and we had a big conversation about well what color is the wall going to be and who likes which color and who thinks it should be what color you know it, I know that sounds flippant but it doesn't feel that different you know just the way that you talk about death in a family is the same way as you talk about everything else I think mm-hmm. you know everyone chips in everyone has an opinion and then the kind of decision gets made and you tell everyone what it is I think it was it was certainly made easier in a in a way because of how I got sick, you know. So I we absolutely had to tell them right at the beginning. You know, <laughs> I was working abroad, and then suddenly, in com- instead of coming home, I wasn't coming home. You know, nanny came to stay for a month, and daddy had to fly out, and mm-hmm. nobody was quite sure what was going on. So they knew that something big had happened. They knew I was in hospital. They knew it was serious. They could see how poorly I was when I came home. We couldn't not tell them that something major had happened. Mm-hmm. But I can completely see how if cancer sort of sneaks up on you, you know, if instead of being detained for a month in, in America and having a massive <laughs> operation, you'd basically just gone to a doctor's surgery and they told you something. 
I don't know quite how and then you just walk through the door like normal Mm. when that moment would come and how you would have that conversation I think that would be you know that would be really hard because you'd you'd go from nothing to your world falling apart in like a heartbeat whereas I think you know my kids by the time I came home I'd been gone for I don't know five weeks maybe Mm, you know and they knew that I'd been in hospital they knew that I'd had surgery they knew that daddy had to fly out in an emergency and like the entire family was kind of you know super anxious so they knew they knew already at that point that it was something major Mm -hmm. so and you may know this but a a lot of the people um, at least in the United States who uh, go into hospice care often go into hospice care within the last several weeks of their life and so I'm just wondering I know you're uh really interested and a big proponent of early intervention of hospice care. So how, how did you decide, okay, this is the time I want to enter hospice care versus say, continuing to pursue more active cancer treatment that might have a slight chance of extending your life a bit. I'm so curious how you make that decision. Yeah, I suppose because maybe it doesn't feel like a clean cut decision. It's maybe maybe in the UK, it's easier to kind of blend things a little more. Mm. Um, so yeah, so so for sure, the, the hospice, they have what they would call inpatient hospice care. So you literally you go there, and you move in. Um, so yeah, people at very end of life would would move in. Um, it's also possible to go in almost for respite care. So, you know, when you get to the point maybe where being nursed at home is quite exhausting for your family, you could go for maybe like a week Mm. or a weekend to give everybody a break. Um, And then they they have a, I don't know what the word is, but they have a a kind of nursing in your own home thing that they can do as well. And again, they talked me through this and this has been really reassuring. So we've talked on a practical level about how it would be possible, you know, to dismantle the bed that I've got, how they could bring a hospital bed in. We've talked about the layout of my house. Um, So on a very practical level, how they would nurse me in my own home. Um, And then kind of where I'm at at the moment is the far end of the spectrum of that was really just community-based nursing. So so I'm kind of on their books and I guess (laughs) booked in for an as yet unknown future date for proper end of life care but in the meantime it's just kind of support so predominantly with pain relief Mm -hmm. but also they've been really helpful advising me you know the kind of questions to ask of the chemo team they've helped liaise with my doctors check all my prescriptions kind of together and that the meds aren't you know that the pain meds are not going to interfere with any of the other meds so they've been very very practical um so in terms of the decision point um I I have made decisions I have I think I suppose the only thing I've actively refused that I've been offered is I was I was offered a referral for um surgery so at the moment my cancer um is in several places kind of in my pelvis and there's the possibility that they could remove one particular part of that cancer through surgery and I've refused that because it's spread. So to me, it seems a bit pointless, frankly, removing one bit of cancer to put myself or my body through the trauma of having surgery and recovering from surgery. 
if we already know the cancers in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it was just in that one place, then I probably would have had it, which is what, so oh, a year and a bit ago, um, they'd identified that I had cancer in my liver and in my in my ovaries, and they were fairly confident they could remove that with surgery. So I had two major surgeries, had liver resection and I had a hysterectomy. Um, um, and the hope was that there was a possibility of removing all of the cancer. Um, but now it's recurred and now it's spread. I think if the surgery can't remove all of the cancer, then that's a lot of stress to put yourself through, you know, the surgery and the recovery and so on. So I've chosen not to have that. I've chosen just to have chemotherapy mm-hmm. at the moment. And I've also been very honest with my oncology team and said that I only want to have treatment if it's going to give me better quality of life. If it makes me so sick, I stop being me, then I probably will start refusing treatment. So again, um, at the moment, I'm on chemotherapy and I'm feeling really, really well. But if I got to the point where the chemotherapy itself was making me sicker than the cancer was... I would stop the chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so having been in the in the hospice system, in the palliative care system, kind of gives me that comfort as well that if I say no to more chemotherapy, I'm not going to be cast adrift. You know, soon, soon I, I, I'm kind of already part of of what will follow because at some point the treatment's going to stop, and at some point I will go into fully palliative and hospice based care. So again, it just feels to me sensible, and that sounds so awfully pragmatic, sensible to get to know those people and understand how they work mm-hmm. and for them to know me yes. while I'm well. So they know me while I'm well. So when I get there, if I'm sick, I feel like they already know me. Yeah, and they know what matters to you. That's really wonderful. And so I know that you've talked about battle metaphors, and i just love for you to go into that and just your thinking about battle metaphors around illness and cancer yeah i i don't like battle metaphors i know some people do and for some people it it works but for me it really doesn't i wonder if it's because i'm lazy maybe (laughs) like the idea of having to fight a thing i just can't be bothered with it Um, i think also the idea that you could lose you know it's like the idea that Anybody who dies from cancer because they didn't fight hard enough, I think that's really unhelpful. I think if you could fix cancer by fighting, everybody would live forever, wouldn't they? You know, it's not, I don't know. So, and and there's a faith element there as well. You know, scripture says the battle is the Lord's, you know, all the way through every time there's a fight in, in scripture, you know, mm-hmm. there's, you know, God says it's not up to you. <laughs> and, 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 I find that I find there's liberty in that actually that it's not up to me that it doesn't matter you know yes I can exercise yes I will try and eat well yes I will try and think positively because I know these things make me feel better on a day-to-day basis but I'm not under any illusion that those things are actually gonna make my cancer go away Mm -hmm. um and again just thinking about the legacy that I leave for my children I don't want them to think you know mommy gave up or she failed that's why she died you know if only she'd have fought harder she'd still be here I think that's really rubbish I think it's okay to say this is a bit of a shit thing and not a lot we can do about it other than just be happy today you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's kind of where my head's at I suppose well and I know you've described um dying well as your retirement project which I just 
I just love that. And I'm just wondering if you could talk more about that and what that means to you. Yeah, I think when I first put it out there, somebody said, oh, great, you know, I'm I'm dying and it's another thing I have to do well. <laughs> and I thought, no, no, it's not at all what I mean. And I felt really bad that this person had received it, like, you know, you know, we have to do everything brilliantly in our lives. It's not about that at all. It, it's the well from well-being is, is where it comes from. So so when I got sick, I, I started looking at what does the evidence say about well-being and terminal illness? And I just realized that there's really quite a big gap mm. <laughs> in research and evidence terms uh, there. Also, because it's, like, death isn't really a thing that people talk about very much. Where it is talked about, it's talked about by medical professionals. There's not a lot of you know, kind of patient voice or perspective in the space. So my plan was to research for my own benefit, what can I learn from well-being research to make myself feel better, frankly, while I'm dying and to, and that's all about trying to be me for as long as I can be for the benefit of my family. And when I started realizing that that was quite an unusual way of thinking about it, and also when I realized that the best way to connect to to people to to find more out about this is through social media so that's that's kind of how it became a public project really so it is my personal journey it is also a, a kind of public project so I think really what it's about is what does finding out what does the well-being evidence say about dying well and what we know is that what is good for people generally is good for people with terminal illness. So mm. <laughs> working is actually good. Um, you know, um, green space, exercise, eating well, social connections, um, all these things matter. We know that finances matter. We know that what we think about our public institutions matter. And I've got a whole section on this on my website. But what we're starting to understand is that people who are sick the priority of the things matters changes. So we are starting to understand that autonomy is hugely important. So being able to make your own decisions and say what matters to you is really, really important and becomes more important for, for people when they're sick. And also, interestingly, health seems to matter less. So you know, despite the fact that all the medical professionals have massively focused on our health, as once we mm. realise that we're dying what seems to matter more to people who are terminally ill is their social connections and their family and their ability to make their own decisions and kind of be their own uh, people. So that all of that resonates massively with me. So I'm just trying to basically doing a geeky research project of my own and, and sharing it <laughs> with the world. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I guess on so kind of where I'm at at the moment, is I've, I've got to what I'm calling my three mini missions, which are the things that seem to be important. So I'm talking about, we've talked about advocating for early intervention palliative care, helping people understand what palliative care and hospice care actually means and why you might want to engage with that when you still feel well, because actually they're really, really good, helpful things. I've, I'm doing a lot of work helping um, workplaces understand that people with terminal illness can keep working and actually that might be really good for them mm. <laughs> good for the employer and good for the person and you can work when you're terminally ill and that can be a really good thing but you need support to do it and you need the right kind of support so I'm doing some work there and mostly just breaking the taboos like you like you're doing Alexandra breaking down the taboos and talking about dying because people just don't have the conversations and I find that really surprising mm -hmm. um 
because just talking about it can make so much difference. Have you found that, um, and maybe it's hard to generalize, but have you found that people who are not dying have a harder time talking about it or is it kind of everyone? I think it's universally tricky. <laughs> I have been amazed to realize how many people with stage, how, how sensitive the language is as well. So a lot of people with stage four cancer would not describe themselves as having a terminal illness, even though medically and statistically, most people with a stage four diagnosis, that, that is what's going to kill them. And I'm kind of interested in exploring a little bit. It's tricky to find out, but but, but why? You know, um, I read a heartbreaking thing recently. A lady, I read a, something on social media and she said that my husband had stage four cancer, but nobody told me he was going to die. And then he died and she was super surprised by it. Mm. I just find that really fascinating. You know, how how at no point in that person's journey had they had the conversation um, and again, this is, you know, I, meant, I mentioned um, Catherine Maddox and she's really doing a lot of work in the space of trying to get medics to have these conversations with their patients. And I just find it baffling. You know, no doctor has ever actually looked me in the eye and said, Claire, this, you're going to die. This is going to kill you. Um, I've had to sign a thing to say I have palliative care. I've seen the statistics on bowel cancer. I've accepted a referral to a hospice. But no medic has actually looked me in the eye and said, this is terminal you're going to die it's fairly obvious that it is and I am Mm -hmm. but I find it really interesting why those conversations are just not don't seem to be happening Mm -hmm. do you have any uh ideas of why that might be the case I think I think medics think they failed if, Mm. if you die and they don't want to do that I think particularly not within hospice care but you know within oncology they they want to save everybody of course they do and we want them to save everybody <laughs> and they don't want to admit that they can't or, you know they they see I think some of them take you dying as quite a personal failure actually, mm. on their part um and I think they're really worried I think they're worried that you know that they will have let you down somehow if they if they say that to you oh. And I think people want to have hope. Of course you do. People want to have hope. They want to hope that if they've, if they've read a statistic that they're the 5% or they're the 10% or that there's going to be another cure or there's going to be another trial. Um, and yeah, I mean, cancer survival is getting better and, and people are living longer, but everybody is going to die at some point. So even now, you know, I wouldn't say definitively that I'm going to die from cancer, but I will say this is what's probably going to kill me. Mm -hmm. And it's probably going to do it sooner rather than later. But again, you know, in our family, we've said, you know, we've, my husband was very nearly run over by a truck, you know, 20 years ago. One of the things I've said to my kids is you don't get to be old without having nearly died of something. You know, everybody's got a story, (laughs) haven't they, of something that's nearly killed them. That is true. That's just the nature of life. You know, things come along that either nearly kill you or do up until the point that you die. That's life. And to pretend otherwise, I think is pretty unrealistic and unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious how you make room. I know that a big focus of yours is um, well-being and feeling well as you can with a terminal illness and so how do you make room for that and 
get up in the morning with intention to feeling well, but also leave room for sadness and anger and fear and all those other emotions? So the answer that I'm tempted to give is discipline. And that makes me sound a whole lot better than I <laughs> I don't want you to think like I'm this uber disciplined person. But it, I think it's a virtuous cycle. You know, I know the things that work for me that make me feel well. And I do them because I know they make me feel better, even though in the moment I might not want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So I know that having plans and things to look forward to is really good for you. And again, it's well-being evidence. I know that exercise is really good for you. I hate exercise. I hate running. I hate doing anything (laughs) physical. I would rather lie on the sofa and eat cake. But I know that if I do that every day, I get fat and I feel sad. So (laughs) I I do things that I know that make me feel better. So it's not rocket science you know you eat well you exercise you get out in green space you connect with people that make you feel good about yourself you make short-term plans of things that you can look forward to things you can put in the diary that are just little things that you can kind of look forward to you can give to other people make space for giving make space for learning new things so all these things are evidence-based practices that we know are good for us and I know it for me so on a practical level little things that are achievable that kind of chime with what I know is going to make me make me feel well um but yeah I mean there are days when I feel rubbish and days when I don't do it um yeah I don't know you you asked how do I make time for the sadness I don't know I mean there's not a huge amount of sadness and anger to be honest mm-hmm. um there's occasional moments of it but honestly I don't know that there's more because I'm terminally ill than there would be in any normal life mm-hmm. you know, everybody's life has moments of rubbish and sadness doesn't it you know yes um and you just when they come along you just deal with it mostly in my family we deal with it by eating cake to be honest <laughs> you know have a cry, eat some cake, get up again to to have a better day tomorrow. (laughs) Um, I love that. And so I'm curious when you plan things in your diary and schedule things out, do you schedule things out as far as you want to? Or do you keep in mind, well, how much time might I have left? And you keep that in the back of your head when you schedule things? Or do you say, you know what, I'm just going to keep scheduling until I can't anymore? So I think that's what's changed for me in this this new phase, what the phase I'm describing as retirement. I think when I realized that I wasn't comfortable committing to things that were like more than three months in the future. And when I realized the pressure of having, because I, I teach and I train and normally I travel for that a lot. I was finding the pressure of seeing, you know, like a whole day's training in the diary, in the calendar, the the feeling that I might not be able to do that, I might not be well enough and I might let those people down. The burden of that was starting to really weigh quite heavily on me. So that's why I've retired. Mm. So what I mean by retired is I don't have very few things in my calendar now that require me to be in a particular place at a particular time. Mm. So I'm saying yes to projects that require me, you know, in this week, I will do this thing, you know, I will 
read this book or make this cake or do that you know so my projects are more like a a mini to-do list for that week let's say rather than things that require me to be particularly well on a given day Mm -hmm. and then yeah when we make plans we make maybe like a rolling three-month plan so I'm planning in January now I'm planning for my birthday in April but not really making definite plans beyond that Mm -hmm. well and I know that you um, have shared that you're very practical. So I, I wonder, have you thought about and talked with your family about what a good death means to you and what that looks like and who is there? And A little bit, although, again, I suppose the practical part of me knows that um, I suspect I'm imagining, I don't know for sure, but I'm imagining that these these plans are a bit like birth plans. I don't know if you have birth plans in a marker. Yes. You know, you spend ages making them and they go out the min- window the second that looks like the baby's actually coming. I'm imagining, <laughs> I don't know whether, <laughs> whether that's going to be how it's like. So I'm a little bit nervous about making like a really specific plan mm-hmm. um, that then maybe obliges my family to stick really rigorously to it, even <laughs> if I don't actually care about it at that point. Um, wow. So I really, from, from when I've been in a hospital, I, I don't like the feeling of being in a hospital. I know that much. So I know that I'm quite keen to avoid being in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm quite keen. One of the things I hate about being in a hospital is not knowing whether it's night and day and there's horrible bright lights. So like, I would love to be able to look out of a window and see some green stuff and know whether it's day or night and whether it's raining or not. Mm. <laughs> um, um so that that's pretty much that's pretty much it really you know um and I've tried to be so I on a practical level I have set up in the in the UK they're called um power of attorney there's some legal stuff that I've done again that's my kind of legal government practical background so that gives my husband legal power to act on my behalf mm-hmm. at any point um to speak for me to make decisions to sign documents for me um and I've nominated my sister-in-law as a backup and really I just rely on them knowing me well enough to make sensible decisions Mm -hmm. when it comes to it rather than me setting out exactly how I want things to be done um and and then there is something again called an advanced care plan which we talked about the role of hospices you can again in the UK you it's a process by which you discuss with your medical team exactly what kind of intervention you might want at what point. Um, and they've been really brilliant. So I asked them the question about, well, how actually does the cancer kill you? What does it going to look like, you know, at, at the end? What kind of interventions might somebody want to try on me? And mm-hmm. <laughs> why would I want them or not? And, and and you can have that discussion, you know, in a they can record that. And, and so... So again, practically, we've we've agreed um, a do not resuscitate order because that pretty much if you need to be resuscitated by somebody turning up in an ambulance, you end up dying in hospital. And that's really something I don't want to happen. So I probably haven't discussed the kind of emotional detail of how I want the last days to be and who I want to be in the room and all that kind of stuff. But I feel I've put enough practical and legal measures in place that the people that know me well enough will be able to make the decisions that are right when the time comes. Mm. You sound amazingly open and flexible to (laughs) whatever may come. I'm just, I'm amazed. 
yeah well life's unpredictable isn't it and why would death be any different um, um and I don't want to stitch my family up I don't want them to sort of have this idea of a thing that I absolutely desperately want to happen that then if it doesn't quite work out like that they have to live with the guilt of letting me down you know I think that just I just want them to know if they do the best they can that'll be fine wow. <laughs> whatever um I mean there's other things that I've done where like I'm being quite precise in thinking about exactly who I want to have say certain bits of jewelry or certain books or certain things I want to give to certain people mm-hmm. um and my husband has said that he thinks that's really helpful because he wouldn't want to give the wrong stuff to the wrong people <laughs> and so those kind of things he I think I think he's more worried about getting wrong you know mm-hmm. um but those kind of things I think we've got realistic control over you know who gets a particular piece of jewelry is completely within my control but how exactly my actual death pans out again maybe it comes back to what we were saying earlier about the fighting and the liberty you know I don't think I can actually control that and I don't think anyone really can I think it's quite unknown so I think it's probably a healthy attitude to think we'll just face it the best we can when it comes After my conversation with Claire, I felt a bit more at peace with the whole idea of dying someday. I'm not sure how long that feeling will last, but it felt good. So Claire, thank you for that. And thank you for sharing your Dying Well retirement project with us, and for helping make it a little easier to talk about death. When your death nears, I hope that you aren't in a hospital. And I hope that you can see day and night and the rain. And I hope that there is cake. If you would like to learn more about Claire, check out her blog, which is where I found her, at dyingwell.uk. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less.